we continue our study through the book of Daniel. This morning, picking back up in chapter 11, verse 21. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 11. In our uh, time together last week, we concluded that the entirety of Daniel chapter 11 is a prophetic vision. In other words, it is a record of a vision that God gave his prophet Daniel regarding the future. So chapter 11 is not as some would like to say prophecy after the fact. It's not as if years after Daniel died, some editor came along and recorded the events of Daniel 11 and cast it in the form of prophecy and included that in the final form of the book of Daniel. That's not what we have in Daniel 11. What we have is a sovereign God who revealed the future to Daniel, and as history played itself out over the following 400 years, the history lined up perfectly with the prophecy. That's what we have in Daniel 11. We saw from last week that the prophecy focused on certain future kings of Persia and Greece, and that was from Daniel 11, 1 through 4, and then certain future kings of Egypt and Syria, which was Daniel 11, 5 through 20. Now this week we pick up in this prophetic revelation regarding the kingdom of Syria, or the Seleucid Empire, uh, as we learned about from last week. And the focus of the prophetic vision uh, from 1121 through 35 will be on a contemptible king of Syria. And after chronicling the events of this particular contemptible king, the prophecy is going to turn in an interesting direction. It will turn to another king. He will be similar in certain ways to the king of Syria, but different in very significant ways. And we will call this king the end-time king. And the prophecy devoted to him will cover Daniel 11, 36 through 45. So with those uh, preliminary marks made, let's get into the scripture. We come to Daniel 11, 21. Let's look at that verse together, which says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. The the person prophesied about here is a person we've already learned about in chapter 8 of Daniel. Uh, There he was described in more apocalyptic terms as a little horn that came out of four conspicuous horns that replaced the great horn that was broken off. You guys remember the horns and the kings and these conspicuous horns and so on and so forth. And to summarize what we learned about the meaning of all of that apocalyptic language, Daniel saw uh, this vision of this great horn that was a reference to the king of Greece. And the historical reference here was Alexander the Great, a figure also referenced in Daniel 11.3, which we looked at last week. Well, the prophecy relayed that Alexander would be broken off and four kings would replace him, 
which is depicted in Daniel's vision in chapter 8 as four conspicuous horns. Those four conspicuous horns were four generals by the names of Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And out of one of those kings or empires would come a king, a little horn, who would commit abominable acts against Israel. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And in case you were wondering, I revisited my notes on the seminary class that talked about this period of history. And I wrote down what my professor said, and what he said was, this was a bad dude. Short version of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Well, of course, Daniel is given much more detail on this king in Daniel 11. As we just read from verse 21, he is a contemptible person. Now, this is a reference to the fact that he will not be liked. As a matter of fact, history will show that instead of people calling him what he wanted to be called, which was Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning the manifestation of a god, he will be called Antiochus Epimanus, which means a madman. So he obviously did not read the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. We also read that no royal majesty had been given to him, which meant that Antiochus IV had no royal right to the throne. In fact, there was another heir to the throne named Demetrius Soter I, the son of Seleucus Philopater IV. Uh, he could not assume the throne, however, because he was locked up in a prison in Rome as a hostage. So Antiochus IV took over the throne as an illegitimate heir. And the manner in which he took the throne was prophesied to Daniel in terms by flatteries. So instead of making deals with an even hand and honesty, the king here, Antiochus IV, will use the tools of deception. And basically what he will do is he'll pay off influential people to help him become the king. And in addition to his underhanded ways, he had military prowess. In verse 22, it was prophesied that armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant, which is a reference to Ptolemy VI. And from the time that, uh, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, not surprising, and he shall become strong with a small people. So with, with these few verses, we're getting some of the contours of Antiochus' character. Uh, he is contemptible. He robs the throne. He is a flatterer. He deceives. And oh, by the way, he calls himself the manifestation of a god. This is a character without a doubt that God is warning the future Israelites through his prophet Daniel to resist. In other words, those Israelites who will be living through the onslaughts of Antiochus IV, which we'll read about more in the verses ahead, they are to say no to his attempt to turn them away from God. And, you know, just learning about the character of a person can lead us to resist their negative influence in our lives. There's a story of Helmut Thalick, a well-known German theologian of the mid-20th century, when he was being pressured by Nazism, he decided to read their ideology himself. 
So he picked up Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and after reading it, was convinced of Hitler's error. He said just reading the book immunized him against the ideology. So with important differences, all that the Israelites at the time of Antiochus IV would need to do is read about Antiochus in Daniel 11. And they would know to resist his influence, to turn them away from the living God. Well, coming into verse 24, we get much of the same of this character. We read that without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. And note this, he shall do... What neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, when Tychus would come on the historical scene, he did exactly this. He came into Egypt and Judea and plundered them for their riches. But he's going to break from tradition, as it says here, he shall... Do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, and he will give that plunder to his soldiers, according to a number of ancient sources. And he will also find himself unsatisfied with his spoils from Egypt. He will move to try and secure Egypt's strongholds, as the end of this verse says, but it will not be successful. At this juncture, Antiochus will have to make a decision. Will he move forward with entering into war against Egypt, or will he be content with what he has? What you know about Antiochus thus far, war or contentment? He's going to go to war. He goes to war with Egypt, and this is what is prophesied about beginning in verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south, which is Ptolemy Philometer VI, with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for a plot shall be devised against him. And indeed, Egypt did lose this battle, as Daniel said. Then in verse 26, even those who eat his food shall uh, break him. That is, his advisors will encourage him to go to war, but his rule shall be broken, since, as the rest of verse 26 says, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So the Egyptians here will lose under Antiochus IV. And after the Egyptians lose, Antiochus takes this uh, defeated king Ptolemy back to Syria with him. Those two are going to eventually strike an agreement to go back to Egypt together and take over the kingdom from Ptolemy's brother. But neither of them are truly serious with each other about this, which is prophesied in verse 27, where we read, As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, meaning neither of them is going to be honest about their intentions to keep the agreement, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So that deal as is prophesied here, will not come to fruition. Now this last clause, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed, gives us some theological reflection in the middle of the prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You see, when we read here about the end, the reference is to the end of Antiochus's reign. 
If we've learned anything in the book of Daniel, it's that the one who is ultimately in charge of setting up kings and bringing them to their end is God. Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and sets up kings. And when it comes to this malicious, capricious king, Antiochus IV, the same applies. God will, at the appointed time, bring him to an end. And for the Israelites living during the reign of this king, they would know, hey, things are going to be hard during the reign of Antiochus IV, but God has put an expiration date on this king. So, persevere. Persevere. And persevere, they would need to do because the prophecy is about to present some details of their persecution that will result in the loss of a lot of life. Look at verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. And the way this will play out in history is that following his successful plundering of Egypt in 169 BC, he will make his trip back to Syria. And the path that he has to traverse to get back to Syria involves passing through Israel. And here is what he does as he passes through Israel according to Daniel's prophecy. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, that's the people of God, and he shall work his will. Or as other translations say, he shall do exploits or he shall do much damage and then return to his land. Antiochus IV is going to come through Israel and wreak havoc. Uh, in fact, history tells us from the writings of 2 Maccabees 5, 12 through 14, that 80,000 Jews were killed. In addition, the temple was plundered, and so Antiochus essentially left his mark on a humiliated Israel as he made his way back to Syria. Now, a time would come, as verse 29 says, at the appointed time, when Antiochus would attempt to invade Egypt again. The year was 168 B.C. Only this time, he wouldn't be matched up just against the Egyptians. As verse 30 says, for the ships of Katim shall come against him. Now, this reference to Katim here is that of the Romans. So not only would Antiochus be matched up against the Egyptians, but he'd also have to fight against Rome, who joined together with the Egyptians against Antiochus. And his fate is described in verse 30 in terms that he shall, note, be afraid and withdraw. Now the way that this played out in history was that a commander of Rome named Gaius Papilius Lionus came to Antiochus in Alexandria, Egypt. And when he approached him, he presented to him a letter that the Roman Senate had written. The letter spelled out that if Antiochus did not retreat, he would risk entering into war with Rome. We read what happens at this point from the writings of the Greek historian Polybius, who wrote during the 2nd century. He said, Gaius, happening to have a vine stick in his hand, he drew a circle around Antiochus with it, and ordered him to give his answer to the letter before he stepped out of that circumference. The king was taken aback by this haughty proceeding. After a brief interval of embarrassed silence, he replied that he would do whatever the Romans demanded. Now all that to say Antiochus was embarrassingly unsuccessful in his invasion of Egypt. And his frustration about the whole thing 
led him to take out his anger against none other than Israel. We read about this beginning in the latter part of verse 30, which says that Antiochus shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant, that is, against the Jewish people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the covenant. Now, this is really significant. In other words, what it's saying here is that Antiochus will show himself favorable to those in Israel who walk away from their faith. So we should take it that the kind of treatment that the Israelites are receiving is the kind in which one's faith is on the line. Will the people of God give in to the leadership of this king and so walk away from the faith? Or will they stand firm against his exploits and keep the faith? That's what's at stake here for the Israelites. It's that big of a deal. And apparently there were some who sold out to Antiochus, as we just read about in verse 30. But there were also those who stood strong and kept the faith. But not before some pretty intense persecution. Not before they had to witness the abomination of this king, Antiochus. Look beginning at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So just imagine the most horrible thing that could happen to a Jewish worshiper of Yahweh at this time. Imagine that very thing, and that is what happened under Antiochus. As history tells us, Antiochus will bring his troops into Jerusalem and desecrate the temple. Uh, he will stop the daily sacrifices, which was the Jews' only way to connect to God. He will prevent Jews from performing circumcision, which was a sign of their covenant with God. And at the height of his desecration of the Jewish faith, on Kislev 15:167, he will set up the abomination of desolation. Now what that means is that he will turn the Jerusalem temple, a place devoted to the worship of the living and true God, into a temple of the god Zeus. And to top it off, in that temple he will offer the sacrifice of a pig, which was unconscionable for a Jewish person. So this is what happened under Antiochus. And like we said, from the standpoint of a Jewish worshiper of Yahweh, it couldn't get any worse. And so the lines were drawn. Who would follow Antiochus? Who would follow God? Who would worship the Greek gods at the temple? Who would revert the temple back to the worship of Yahweh? That's the issue. Verses 32 through 35 essentially traces the two groups of people here. There will be those who for fear of losing their livelihood will bow the knee to Antiochus. But there will be those who for fear of God will, as verse 32 says, stand firm and take action. And these ones who stand firm and take action in the fulfillment of this prophecy are those who stand with the Jewish priest Mattathias and his five sons. Now, One of these sons, Judas Maccabees, would lead what was called the Maccabean Revolt. And if you remember from Pastor Ben's sermon on Daniel 8, you remember how he rehearsed some of the details of this particular revolt. Now, This re revolt would result in the purging of the altars that were set up in Israel to Greek gods. 
And it would culminate in the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem so that sacrifices to and the worship of the one true and living God could resume. It was quite a remarkable feat by the Maccabees. And as history records for us, in the same year of 164 B.C., two significant events would happen in regard to the Jewish people. The first was that Antiochus IV died sometime around November or December, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 11.35, which speaks about the time of the end. Remember how the time of the end back in Daniel 11.27 had to do with the end of Antiochus' reign. Well, same thing here in Daniel 11.35. And the way in which his reign obviously would come to an end was by his death. And then the second significant thing or event that happened in 164 was the rededication of the temple to the worship of the Lord on Kislev 25, 164 B.C., that is December 25th, 164 B.C. So that ends the prophecy relative to the Israelites' interaction with this historical figure, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now we turn a corner in the prophecy, uh, beginning in verse 36. In verses 21 through 35, the focus was clearly on Antiochus IV. But in verse 36, a shift occurs to another king. Now what king is this, we may ask? Who is being referred to beginning in verse 36? Well, let's read that verse and then we'll do a little bit of digging. The verse says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Now note first of all that this king is not attached to either the north or the south. And throughout chapter 11 we've made mention, right, of the designations and we've seen it as we've worked through the chapter either the king of the south or the king of the north. We've made mention of those designations because that's how the prophecy given to Daniel progressed. And this king of the north would, you know, do such and such to this king of the south, and that's how this prophecy had been going. But when we come to verse 36, we just read the king. So that's already tipping us off to something different. Now the second thing to note is that this king is able to do as he wills. Did you note that? This is in stark contrast to Antiochus IV. While Antiochus IV was very powerful, his will was greatly limited by Rome. So this king in verse 36 is not the Antiochus IV, which we just looked at. So obviously we're looking at a shift here. Now the third thing to note is his description. Daniel is told that this king shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak astonishing things against the God of gods. That's his description. Now, an initial question we need to ask is, does this description fit the description of somebody else that we've already seen in the book of Daniel? In other words, is there another character prophesied about in Daniel who will speak like this? And in searching for an answer to that question, we find ourselves back in Daniel chapter 7. Remember those four beasts. There was the first beast that was like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, 
and a fourth beast that was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And you remember that out of this fourth beast came a little horn. So that was the vision that Daniel received. But then Daniel got the interpretation of this vision later on. And in that interpretation, Daniel is told about this little horn. And so we read, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another, that is another little horn, another king shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. And note this, he shall speak words against the Most High. So note that with Daniel 7, 24-25, we've got this parallel. He shall speak words against the Most, most High, and then Daniel eleven thirty six. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of, th- of gods. I think that we're talking about the same individual here. And of course you remember from Daniel 7.25 that the individual that is being referenced here is a final world ruler at the end of time. Namely, the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. And so Daniel 11.36 And following is dealing with the Antichrist. But I realize that this may need a little bit more validation outside the book of Daniel. Just observe the fact that we just validated the identity of the king in Daniel 11.36 with evidence within the book of Daniel. But you may ask, can we validate the identity of this king outside the book of Daniel? And of course, thank you for asking that question. I know you were asking that. Because there is just a text that speaks about this king in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. We've dealt with this text at some length as we went through the rapture question. And we will note something else about this text that connects us to Daniel eleven thirty six. Let's get the whole context here and I'll cue us at the part I want to draw our attention to. We begin in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who now, note this, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And of course, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Daniel 11.36 says, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. And 2 Thess 2.4 says, He exalts himself against every so-called God. I think this is referring to the same individual. So we learn from Paul, we learn that the king of Daniel 11.36 is the man of lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And from other places in the New Testament, the man of lawlessness is called the abomination of desolation by Jesus in Matthew 24.15, the Antichrist by John in 1 John 2.18, and the beast by John in Revelation 13. And what these passages together teach us is that this final world ruler will take his place in a rebuilt temple at some point in the future. 
which will be in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, and he will declare himself to be God, demanding that all people in the whole world take his mark and so identify with him and worship him. But a whole lot more can be said about him. If we hop back over to Daniel 11.37, there are some other things about what we're going to see is the religion of the Antichrist. The religion of the Antichrist. The text says that he, verse 37, shall pay no attention to any other God or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, in working on the interpretation of these verses this last week, I realized that being super dogmatic about the details here is very difficult. And so I found myself in solidarity with one commentator who said about verse 37, this sentence is, if anything, unclear. So thank you. Of course, this shouldn't discourage us from pressing into the details and at least drawing some broad conclusions. And that was what we're going to do for the next couple of moments. Just to skip the rock across the water here, a lot more could be said. Let's start with this phrase that says, the Antichrist will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. What this simply means is that he will break free from the religious tradition of his forebears. Now, whatever that tradition may be, he is going to walk away from it. Furthermore, he will not pay attention to the one beloved by women. Now, I looked at the interpretive options for this, and I wasn't really satisfied with any of them in the sense that I could say, oh, of course, that's what that means. So having said that, there, I think, is one interpretation that is good, uh, and I'm holding it somewhat tentatively. And it's the uh, interpretation that says that um, the one beloved by women here is the Messiah. And so just to explain for a second, among Jewish women, there was this desire to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. Uh, we certainly see this in the account of the birth of Jesus. Remember how Elizabeth came to Mary and said to her, blessed are you among women. So this perhaps hints at the desire among Jewish women to be the bearer of the Messiah. And if this is the case, the Antichrist will have no regard for the Messiah. Now, let's just say that that's not what this little clause is saying here. The very fact that he's called the Antichrist sort of tips us off to the fact that he doesn't like Christ, right? So, just throwing that out where that was free. Also, he will pay attention, notice, to no other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So, in other words, take all the other gods out there that people worship, okay? The Antichrist will show no respect to them. At the end of the day, he will exalt himself above them all. And to put this in simplest terms, the Antichrist will create his own religion. And it will involve the magnification of himself. Now having said that, what do we do with verse 38? Because as we read verse 38, it seems to say the opposite of what we just read. Right? Look at verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his father did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. How does he set himself up as God and yet honor another God? Do you see the little conundrum here? 
Well, one answer may be, as a number of commentators say, that the expression, the God of fortresses, means the God of warfare or military power. And so perhaps the idea here is that the Antichrist will make a God out of warfare. So he will make an idol out of war. Now that fact that he will love war and military power is obvious from passages like Daniel 7 where the Antichrist is subduing nations under his rule. I mean, he seems to love war. So that is a possibility for the meaning here. But let me propose that I think there's a more specific referent to look for as we move farther along in the Bible. And to lead us into that referent in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the Antichrist is spoken of in this way. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan. What Paul is saying is that the lawless one is going to come, and by coming I take that to mean all the work that his coming entails. He is going to come and do all his work by the activity of Satan. In other words, Satan will be empowering him and giving him his strength. You know, it's true that you know, people do get possessed by demons and people are controlled by Satan, but this lawless one, the Antichrist, will be under the full operation of the prince of darkness, the devil. There's more if we look at Revelation 13, which is a passage in which the Antichrist is pictured as the beast. We get even more detail. I'll start at verse 1 of Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So let's pause here. Who is the beast? The Antichrist. But who is the dragon? Well, look over at Revelation 12, 9, if you have your copy of God's word in front of you, and notice that it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So the dragon is Satan. So in Revelation 13, 2, we have the same thing in, in apocalyptic terms that Paul said in 2 Thess 2, 9, and that is that the Antichrist has his power given to him by Satan. But we've got to keep moving here. Picking back up in Revelation 13, 3, it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And notice who they're worshiping. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? I just want to note two things here. One is, warfare is clearly in the context. I mean, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The beast, the Antichrist, is being praised for his uncontested military power, his ability and warfare, which connects us back to what we saw in Daniel 11. But note secondly, and more importantly for our purposes, there are two figures being worshipped here. The dragon and the beast. Satan and the Antichrist. 
so what I want to say is that when Daniel spoke about the final end time king honoring another god, progressive revelation tells us that the god he will worship is Satan. It will be Satan who gives him his power. It will be Satan that he will honor. And I know that this may seem very obvious, but realize that the end time picture of religion will be one in which the devil will be explicitly worshipped. You know, I think it's true that throughout history, the devil has been satisfied in different forms of false religion, right? He's okay if people are polytheists or pantheists or panentheists or animists or whatever ist you want to throw on there. He's happy with as long as it's not the worship of the one true and living God. But it seems that at the end time, the kind of worship that we're going to be seeing is going to be a kind of worship in which the devil will be explicitly worshipped. Explicitly worshipped. And the people at that time who worship Satan and worship the Antichrist, the Antichrist is actually going to make it real sweet for them. Look back at 1136 of chapter Daniel, or chapter Daniel, the book of Daniel. That's not written in my notes, by the way. We read there that he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, that's Satan. Now check this out. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. I think we can see here that the Antichrist is pictured as one who will subdue fortresses or nations. This is clearly in keeping with what we saw in Daniel 7. But what are nations made of? They're made up of leaders and people. So he will not only be subduing leaders of nations, but the people of those nations as well. And from those leaders who acknowledge his rule, they will be shown particular honor. And they will rule different areas of the earth on his behalf, as this verse talks about. So we see here that the Antichrist is going to make it real nice for leaders of countries who submit to his rule and worship him. Now, we know from progressive revelation that anyone who takes uh, the mark of the Antichrist and worships him, he will make it real nice for them as well. Uh, They will be able to buy and sell and live life with a relative or a great deal of ease. And and because of the Antichrist's so-called allowances and blessings on people, they're going to feel at peace. They're going to say, peace and safety. But the fact is, we know because we've read the book that it never works out well when people go in with the devil. It never works out well to fall under the pressure of temptation. Satan always oversells the product and undersells the consequences. He is the father of lies. So that is the religion of the Antichrist. But like we already concluded, mixed in with this religious component is his military might. Uh, He is going to be a powerful military commander, able to pull together the whole world into his kingdom vortex. And there seems to be this pinnacle to his success that we've seen from passages like Daniel 7, where the Antichrist is seen to be at the top of the heap over this united league of nations. Okay, He's won the world powers. He's got the kingdoms of this world under his rule. But we get some revelation from Daniel 11, 40 through 45, that shows us 
that what the Antichrist has pulled together, God has ordained to fall apart. And the way it's going to fall apart is pretty complex, as we're going to see from these verses. It's apparently not one point in history, but the falling apart of the kingdom of the Antichrist will look like fits and starts. He will have a fit here, but start back at it over here. He will have some rebellion here, but subjugation over here. Yet there will be an end to his reign. Beginning in verse 40. I'm just going to walk through this like I'm walking through a commentary. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, the Antichrist. But the king of the north shall rush upon him, the Antichrist, like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. I just want us to note here that the Antichrist is having a play defense. And perhaps this is some rebellion. And mixed in with the same verse is some successful subjugation as we read. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. So here's more success. Verse 41. He shall come into the glorious land, that's Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Note here, rebellion. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Successful subjugation. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Successful subjugation. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Success. But notice verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. He shall come to an end with none to help him. The Antichrist had it all. The whole world. But he couldn't keep it in his hands. He shall come to an end with none to help him. Do you sense the aloneness of that place? Do you sense the dramatic finality of such a sentence? He shall come to an end with none to help him. And quite frankly, brothers and sisters, we know this, but that's what throwing your hat in with Satan looks like. He oversells the product and undersells the consequences. And for the Antichrist, here is the consequence for him. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 The Lord Jesus will kill him, listen to this, with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What match is the Antichrist to the real Christ? He's no match at all, but by the breath of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And he will put down the Antichrist. Effortless. After going through a chapter like Daniel 11... Aren't you glad that you're on the side with Jesus? Aren't you glad that you know that while life may be difficult in this life, and there may be suffering, and and as the Apostle Paul said, that anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Knowing, though, 
that our Lord Jesus Christ has won is an incredible encouragement. Amen? It allows us to get through whatever kind of difficulty, whatever kind of suffering that God has for us. I think that we read a passage, we read a chapter like Daniel 11, and we see a whole bunch of prophecy and a lot of details and stuff. And I know you guys have got all this memorized. But I want us to take away from this passage, in the same way that the Israelites, when they first read this chapter, were called to persevere underneath the persecution of Antiochus IV. That you and I, regardless of what God has for us in terms of whether we live through the end times or not, that you and I would be faithful. That we would persevere. That we would keep believing the gospel that has saved us and not walk away from our faith. That we would keep believing that the life that God has for us and living a life of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is the only life to live. Why would we want to live any other life? Guys, throwing our whole lot in with Jesus is the best thing. And I want us to be encouraged by that again afresh this morning from Daniel chapter 11. Our Lord Jesus wins. Amen? He wins. Let's pray.